السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا اما بعد فاعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا ايها الذين امنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما صليت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى ال محمد كما باركت على ابراهيم وعلى ال ابراهيم انك حميد مجيد respects the listeners last week we started the study and commentary of the hadith of hijrah by um al-mu'minin Aisha radiyallahu anha from Sahih al-Bukhari Virtually the whole session last week was taken up in providing an introduction and a background to the events that ultimately led to the hijrah. There's a lot more that can be said about that, but I, I intend to actually begin the hadith today. If you wish to learn about further details regarding the background to the hijrah and some of the events that led up to it then please refer to some of the talks I've given previously such as the commentary on the hadith of sincerity of intention in the al-amal bin-niyat also the talk I gave about hijrah being a watershed etc but today let's actually begin the hadith bismillahir rahmanir rahim This is hadith number 3905 from Sahih al-Bukhari from the book Kitab al-Manaqib al-Ansar book of the virtues of Ansar and specifically the chapter Babu Hijrat al-Nabiy sallallahu alayhi wa sallam wa ashabihi ila al-Madinah chapter of the emigration of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and his companions to Medina for those of you who aren't following with the full version of Sahih al-Bukhari then from the summarized version at Tajdid al-Sarih the hadith number is 1593 wa bil isnad al-muttasil minni ila al-imam al-bukhari rahimahullah qala haddathna yahya ibn bukayr qala haddathna al-layth an uqayl qala ibn shihab fa akhbarni urwat ibn zubayr anna aisha radiyallahu anha zawjan nabiyya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qalat with a continuous chain from me to Imam Bukhari rahimahullah he says Yahya ibn Bukayr related to us that Layth related to us from Uqayl who said Ibn Shihab al-Zuhri said that Urwat ibn Zubayr informed me that Aisha the wife radiyallahu anha the noble wife of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said لم اعقل ابوي قط الا وهما يدينان الدين 
She says that I never knew my parents, except that they both followed the religion. What she's, so she begins this long account of Hijrah with the introductory words that take us back to her childhood and the state of the family of Abu Bakr radiallahu in the earliest days of Islam. And she mentions something that was of great honor and prestige to her and her family. Namely, that they had an ancient tradition of Islam. Her father and her mother were both the earliest Muslims. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq is renowned as being the first free man who embraced Islam from the adults. Sayyidina Ali radiyallahu an was the first child. Sayyidina Zayd ibn Haritha radiyallahu an, the adopted son of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, was a first freed slave to embrace Islam. And Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha was the first Muslim, Banan, and also the first lady and woman to embrace Islam. But of the men, and Abu Bakr's Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha, Zayd ibn Haritha radiyallahu an, and Ali ibn Abi Talib radiyallahu an, these were all family members of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the first person to embrace Islam from out of the family was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu an. And his wife, he had a number of wives, but the mother of Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha and her full-blood brother Abdul Rahman, her name was Umm Ruman. And she, Asma, Asma radiyallahu anha, was her half-sister. They both shared the same father, Abu Bakr, but they had different mothers. Asma radiyallahu anha's mother was known as Qatila, and or according to some pronunciations, Qutayla. But she was the mother of Abdullah and Asma radiyallahu anha. But Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, her mother was Umm Ruman, and her full-blood brother was Abdul Rahman. So she says that ever since I came to my senses as a child, Never have I known a day of disbelief in my house. My father was a Muslim. My mother was a Muslim. Both were the, some of the earliest Muslims. And this was a thing of great prestige and honor. Because later, the Sahaba anhum, when Islam flourished and spread, and the Muslims became prominent and dominant in many places, people would trace their religious ancestry back to the earliest days. Prior to Islam, people prided themselves on their ethnic ancestry, on their blood, on their lineage, and their family. But later, they began tracing their religious ancestry and taking pride in that. 
and who could claim a greater honor than the family of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu At the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, it was the only family, even till the time the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam departed from this world, when four generations of the same family were all Muslim. So you had the, grandf- the great-grandfather, the father of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu, Uthman Abu Quhafa. His kunya was Abu Quhafa, that's what he was most famously known by, and his name was Uthman. So you had the great-grandfather, Abu Quhafa, who embraced Islam in the eighth year of Hijrah, at the conquest of Mecca. You had his son, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu, who was a Muslim. You had the children of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu anhu, Asma, Abdullah, Abdul Rahman, Aisha, These were all Muslims. And you had the son of Asma radiyallahu anha, Abdullah ibn Zubayr, the great-grandson. So at the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, this family was unique in that the grandchild, the parents, the grandparents, and one of the great-grandparents were all Muslims. So, Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha says, لم أعقل أبوية قط إلا وهما يدينان الدين I have never known my parents, ever, except that they both followed the religion. وَلَمْ يَمُرَّ عَلَيْنَا إِلَّا يَأْتِينَا فِيهِ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ طَرَفَيِ النَّهَارِ بُكْرَةً وَعَشِيَةً She says that not a day would pass over us except that the Prophet ﷺ would visit us at the two ends of the day, morning and evening. Here she describes how close she was, her family was especially her father, to the Prophet ﷺ. Indeed, he was his best friend, even before Islam. And after embracing Islam too, she remembers from the moment she first came to her senses that she had her family, her mother Umm Rumam, her father Abu Bakr, and they had a regular visitor every single day. Imagine how close they were, how friendly they were, that Prophet ﷺ would visit this family every single day, morning and evening. She then says, When the Muslims were when the Muslims were persecuted or were put under trial and tribulation. خرج أبو بكر مهاجرا نحو أرض الحبشة. أبو بكر رضي الله عنه left, emigrating towards the land of the Abyssinians. As I explained in my introduction and on other occasions, when the Prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم invited the Quraysh and the people of Mecca to Islam. Initially, at the first call, there was opposition. 
There was indifference, then there was opposition. But the opposition initially was restricted to verbal arguments, debates, on occasions jibes and insults. But gradually this escalated. And eventually verbal insults and jibes turned into jostling and arguing turned into quarrelling and physical fighting and persecution. And eventually, the Quraysh, when they became very intense in their opposition, they began physically hurting and harming the Muslims. And we know of the accounts such as the family of Yasir, the father of Ammar, Ammar his mother, Sumiya, his father, Yasir, they would be tied up and tortured. And the Muslims were helpless. The Prophet ﷺ would pass by them and appeal to them saying, Sabran ala Yasir, That O family of Yasir, patience. For your promise is Jannah. Your promised destination is Jannah. So... That was the, that family. Then there were other others as well. Bilal ibn Rabah radiyallahu an, who was per, tortured. Some of the others like Khabab ibn al-Arat radiyallahu an. The stories are very famous. Without going into details about many of the others, let me give an account of the father of Aisha radiyallahu anha herself, Abu Bakr radiyallahu an, how he himself was persecuted. And ultimately what this persecution led to. Prophet ﷺ, in approximately the fifth year of prophethood, he told the Sahaba anhum that leave Mecca and travel to the land of the Abyssinians. There there is a noble and just king who follows the Christian faith. And he is a just ruler. In his land, no one is wronged. And you will be free to believe and to worship in peace. And you will be free from persecution. So, Prophet ﷺ encouraged them to travel to Abyssinia. They were known as the Habashah, the Abyssinians. But it was actually the kingdom of the Axumites or the, not the, the Aksumite kingdom. And the area which they went to was Aksum. So it's in modern-day Ethiopia. So it's just straight across the Red Sea. Normally they would travel south towards uh, Yemen. And there, where there's a very narrow strait, the Strait of Aden, they would travel across the Strait of Aden, across the Red Sea, uh, and into the Horn of Africa. That was their main crossing. And there, that was where in modern day Ethiopia, that's where you had the kingdom of Aksum. So the prophets and their leader and ruler was a Najashi, which was a generic term for all the Abyssinian emperors, just like Caesar was for the Roman emperors, Khosrow was for the Sasanian Persian emperors, the generic term and title for the rulers of the Abyssinians or the Akshamite kingdom was a Najashi Negus. So the Prophet told them to travel there. First, a very small group left. 
of approximately 15 people and then a second wave left after them of just over 100 people, approximately 101 people. And the first group consisted even of family members of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And the first group was actually led by Uthman ibn Mud'un radiyallahu anhu, very famous companion. He was the brother-in-law of Sayyidina Umar ibn Khattab radiyallahu anhu, one of the earliest Muslims. And Uthman ibn Mud'un radiyallahu anhu was actually invited to Islam by Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu And he became Muslim because of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu So there were many stories of persecution and they did, they emigrate this first hijrah took place in approximately the fifth year of prophethood. So when the first wave of Muslims had left, even Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu despite being a nobleman of the Quraysh, he felt so pressured, so abandoned, and so persecuted in his own land, despite being who he was, that even he intended to emigrate and do hijrah towards the land of the Abyssinians and follow his fellow Muslims. And just one of the accounts of his persecution, and prior to mentioning the story, let me just share with you that one of the reasons why the noblemen of the Quraysh amongst the Muslims, they escaped persecution was because of that tribal hierarchy and that clan structure, that their clans afforded them protection. And there was no rule, there was no authority. Everything hung in a very fine balance of power and strength. And people were deterrents. There were deterrents. So... One was protected by one's siblings, one's immediate family. That immediate family had the backing and the protection of the clan. The clan had the protection of the tribe and so on. Those who didn't have that family protection or clan protection, they were exposed and they were vulnerable. This is why all of the weaker Sahaba radiallahu anhum, without that family clan tribal protection, they were the ones who were singularly picked out and they were physically tortured and even murdered, as happened with the parents of Ammar ibn Yasir radiallahu anhum. But the others escaped this persecution, not because the Quraysh felt that he is one of us, she is one of us, we won't torture them, we won't persecute them, we'll tolerate them, no. They bore the same hatred towards them, but they feared retaliation. So if they attacked someone who belonged to a strong family and the family was backed by a clan of the Quraysh or the non-Arab uh, residents of Mecca, or a non-Quraysh Arab residents of Mecca. They feared that we harm one of them, the clan will retaliate. And if their clan retaliates, we'll enter into another warfare, another battle, another war with clans and tribes. So there was this deterrent. That was, that was all that it was. Otherwise... At heart, they harbored the same resentment and they wanted to inflict the same harm upon them as the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. So Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu belonged to the clan of Banu Tayyim. Banu Tayyim at the time wasn't that powerful, but it was still an Arab clan of the Quraysh. So Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu 
was still honored because before he embraced Islam, he was a highly successful businessman, a renowned trader, a scholar, a poet, a man of words, a man of letters. And he was known for his scholarship, especially about poetry and the Arabic language and genealogy. And he was very wise, he was very soft-hearted, very noble, very well-behaved. In fact, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu never touched a drop of alcohol in his entire life. Not even after Islam, but even in the days of Jahiliyyah. He and Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu and Uthman ibn Mad'un radiallahu too. So there were noble people amongst the Quraysh. These were certain enlightened individuals. They shunned idolatry. They shunned the malpractices of their people. They even shunned alcohol, the worship of idols, alcohol, and various other things. And subhanAllah, I say idolatry and alcohol, but... In the Qur'an, they were associated. Allah Azza wa Jal says, يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِنَّمَا الْخَمْرُ وَالْمَيْسِرُ وَالْأَنصَابُ وَالْأَزْلَامُ رِجْسٌ مِّنْ عَمَلِ الشَّيْطَانِ فَاجْتَنِبُوهُ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ O believers, verily, alcohol, wine, gambling, والأنصاب and the altars of sacrifice, والأزلام and the arrows of divination, all of these are ridsum min amilish shaytan, impurities from the works of the devil. So even Allah associated the altars of sacrifice and alcohol. But certain enlightened individuals like Uthman ibn Affan, Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, Uthman ibn Mad'un radiallahu they shunned the practices of their people in religion. They shunned idolatry. They even shunned the misdeeds and the misbehavior and the misdemeanors of their people and their indiscretions and their habits such as gambling and alcohol and etc. So Sayyidina Abu Bakr as-Siddiq was regarded as a wise, noble individual. He, sat, he had a seat in the council of the Quraysh where he would participate in the political, social, tribal discussions. His word was listened to. He was respected. And not only that, he actually held an office. He held office. He represented his clan, Banu Daim, in certain responsibilities that were divided amongst the Quraysh. But just like the Prophet ﷺ, until he announced Islam, they regarded him highly. But the moment the Prophet ﷺ proclaimed his message, they turned against him. The same with Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu Till the moment he embraced Islam, he was regarded as intelligent, wise, a nobleman, someone of respect and honor. But the moment he embraced Islam, he lost that in the eyes of the Quraysh at least, those who were antagonistic towards the Muslims. And then, after he embraced Islam, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu on one occasion... He said to the Prophet ﷺ, Ya Rasulullah, the Muslims hadn't yet reached 40, there were just under 40 Muslims. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq said to the Prophet ﷺ, O Messenger of Allah, why don't we openly preach to the Quraysh? 
So the Prophet ﷺ discouraged him and said, we are not strong in number. So Abu Bakr persisted. We are not many in number. He persisted. Eventually one day the Prophet ﷺ granted them permission. So Abu Bakr stood in the haram of Mecca around the Kaaba, and he began preaching. When the Quraysh heard his words, they were, them, they were beside themselves with rage. They actually launched themselves on him and physically attacked him. And all the other Muslims who were in the haram, one by one they picked them out. In their anger, on this occasion, they disregarded tribal loyalty and they began attacking uh, whoever they could catch amongst the Muslims. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq was beaten so badly by a number of them that one of them, Utbat ibn Rabi'ah, he actually sat on the chest of Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu an, and with his sandals, he whiplashed him repeatedly across the face until he made him unconscious, and he made him bleed to such a degree and bruised his face with uh, his sandals that it's mentioned in the narrations that the whole face of Abu Bakr radiyallahu an was reduced to a bloody pulp, so that it was the front was indistinguishable from the back. And then some members of his clan arrived, Banu Tayn, and they rescued Abu Bakr radiallahu an and took him to his house. There they lay him on his bed. His family began caring for him, his immediate family. The clan of Tayn, even though they were non-Muslim, remember it was a question of tribal honor as well. If one family member had been attacked, regardless of his views and his religion, and the remaining family did not retaliate or stand to his defense, it was a great dishonor for them. So, Banutain, not just because of the question of honor, but in genuine sincerity, when they saw their kinsmen being attacked and beaten unconscious in this manner by a member of a rival clan. They were incensed. So they went to the, the, the leaders of the clan of Banutain. They went to the haram and they openly announced, they abused the others and they openly announced because they thought Abu Bakr an may die. So they said, by Allah, if Abu Bakr dies, we will retaliate and we will kill Utbat ibn Rabi'ah. So then they went back. The family gathered around him. Some of the clan leaders told his mother and his family to look after him well. Eventually, at sunset in the evening, Abu Bakr opened his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, his family was around him. Some of his clan members were around him. They were non-Muslim, the clan members. And the first words he uttered were, how is Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam? So the clan members became annoyed. And they said, "We look how much you have suffered. Woe be unto you, Abu Bakr. Look how much you have suffered. All because of Muhammad ibn Abdullah. And look how much we have had to endure and become embroiled in because of you. And after a day of unconsciousness and after such a severe beating... Your first words upon regaining consciousness are about the same Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the how is Muhammad ibn Abdullah. So the clan members, in their anger and disgust, they left. 
But the mother began looking after Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. And one of the kind members told her to feed him and give him to drink. So the mother tried to feed and give water to drink to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, his own mother, but he refused. She tried to force feed him, he refused. And then he said, by Allah, I take a vow. I will not eat a morsel of food or drink a sip of water until I have seen with my own eyes that the Prophet ﷺ is well and safe. So then the mother didn't know where to find out, how to inquire. She eventually was told to contact Umm Jamil, the sister of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu So she went and she asked Umm Jamil that, do you know where Muhammad ibn Abdullah is? So Umm Jamil radiyallahu anha, in those days there was a question of great secrecy. They were all fearful because of the climate and the hostility towards Muslims. And that day the Muslims had just suffered a severe beating. Even the nobleman of the Quraysh, Abu Bakr, who was a former council member, a representative of his own clan, if he had suffered in that manner, then what of the others? So Umm Jamil radiallahu anha, she feigned ignorance and said, I don't know who or where Muhammad ibn Abdullah is. Then she told her about her son's condition. She said, I will come with you. When they went, Umm Jamil radiallahu anha, when she saw the state of Abu Bakr radiallahu anha, all discretion, and all caution flew out of the window. And she rushed forward and with great emotion and in a loud voice exclaimed and began cursing those who had attacked Abu Bakr in that manner. And then Abu Bakr said to her, Where is Rasulullah and how is he? So Umm Jameel said to her, Is it safe to speak here? Because she is here, your mother. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anh said she is to be trusted. So she wasn't a Muslim till then, the mother. So Umm Jamil radiallahu anha told him that he is in Darul Arqam. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anha said, take me then. Subhanallah, in the evening at night, these two women, Umm Jamil radiallahu anha and the mother, they dragged and carried Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, and he had he was leaning on them in that pitiful state. He went braving all danger to the house of Arqam, where the Prophet was present with the Sahaba radiallahu anhu. When he entered, Prophet stood up, and with tears in his eyes, he rushed forward and he kissed Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu anhu. Abu Bakr said, all my pain has disappeared. Then Abu Bakr pointed to his mother and said, Ya Rasulullah, she is my mother. Pray for her, that Allah guides her to Islam. Prophet prayed for her there and then, and lo and behold, immediately she embraced Islam too. Even in that condition, all he was worried about was his mother's Islam and the well-being of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa That was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So when Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha says, فَلَمَّ بْتُلِيَ الْمُسْلِمُونَ خَرَجَ أَبُو بَكْرٍ 
muhajiran ila ardil habasha. That when the Muslims were tormented and persecuted, Abu Bakr radiallahu an left Mecca and made his way towards the land of the Abyssinians. So the others were persecuted, but even Abu Bakr Siddiq radiallahu an suffered in that manner, subhanAllah. Kharaja Abu Bakr Abu Bakr radiallahu an left, he left Mecca muhajiran, emigrating nahwa ardi al-habasha towards the land of the Abyssinians. Hatta idha balaka barka al-ghimad. Until when he reached Barkul Ghimad. Barkul Ghimad, a few weeks ago I spoke about the, I, I commented on the hadith of Abu Darda radiallahu an on knowledge. And on that occasion I spoke about Barkul Ghimad being in the southernmost part of Yemen. And it was so far from other areas that the Arabs would refer to Barkul Ghimad as Land's End. So it became a common phrase. And that's why it was mentioned then that if I had to travel all the way to Barkul Ghimad from Damascus, I would do so for the sake of a verse. And even the Sahaba radiallahu anhum on the occasion of Badr, they told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Sa'd ibn Mu'adh radiyallahu an said to him, Ya Rasulullah, if you were to take us and travel with us all the way to Barkul Ghimad, we would march with <coughs> So Barkul Ghimad became a phrase referring to a very distant place. And I mentioned that the equivalent in English would be when someone wishes to describe traveling from one end of the country to the other, from John O'Groats to Land End. So... Barkul Ghimad was similar to Land's End. But on this occasion, it was literally, wasn't a figurative phrase. He actually travelled to Barkul Ghimad all the way from Mecca at a mar- uh, march of about five nights journey. And that's where the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum may have possibly led, uh, left the Arabian Peninsula from. He was on the coast. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhum marched five nights all the way to Barkul Ghimad alone, subhanAllah, alone in order to do hijrah. When he arrived in Barkul Ghimad, this coastal place, in order to cross the uh, Strait of Aden and enter into the Horn of Africa for the hijrah, there he met someone. And Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha continues with the hadith. حَتَّى إِذَا بَلَكَ بَرْكَ الْغِمَادِ Until when he reached Barkul Ghimad, لَقِيَهُ إِبْنُ الدُّغُنَّةِ لَقِيَهُ إِبْنُ الدُّغُنَّةِ وَهُوَ سَيِّدُ الْقَارَةِ إِبْنُ الدُّغُنَّةِ met him and he was the chief of the Qara tribe. فقال, so he said, أَيْنَ تُرِيدُ يَا أَبَا بَكْرِ وِذَا أَوْ أَبُو بَكْرِ فقال أبو بكر أبو بكر رضي الله عنه said, أَخْرَجَنِي قَوْمِي My people have driven me out. فَأُرِيدُ أَنْ أَسِيحَ فِي الْأَرْضِ so I wish to travel in the land وَأَعْبُدَ رَبِّي and worship my Lord. قَالَ ابْنُ الدُّغُنَّةِ ابْنُ الدُّغُنَّةِ said to him فَإِنَّ مِثْلَكَ يَا أَبَا بَكْرَ أو أبو بكر The likes of you لَا يَخْرُجُ وَلَا يُخْرَجُ They do not leave nor are they driven out. فَإِنَّ مِثْلَكَ يَا أَبَا بَكْرَ لَا يَخْرُجُ وَلَا يُخْرَجُ The likes of you, O Abu Bakr, 
do not leave and are not made to leave. Even though Ibn Dhunna was a non-Muslim. And he was a chieftain of a tribe, of the tribe of Qara. And then he carries on, he says, فَإِنَّ مِثْلَكْ For the likes of you, يَا أَبَا بَكْرْ أَوْ أَبُو بَكْرْ لَا يَخْرُجُ وَلَا يُخْرَجْ They do not leave, nor are they made to leave. إِنَّكَ تَكْسِبُ الْمَعْدُونَ Verily, you provide for the destitute. You provide for the deprived. وَتَصِلُ الرَّحِمْ And you bind the bonds of blood. وَتَحْمِلُ الْكَلْبِ and you bear the burden. And you honor and host the guest. And you assist others over the misfortunes of fate. This is what Abu Bakr was known for. Now, interestingly, Ibn al-Dughunna was a non-Muslim. And he wasn't a close friend of Abu Bakr radiallahu But they were acquainted. They knew each other. They weren't even from the same tribe. But when he met him on this occasion, he recognized him and he said, Oh Abu Bakr, where are you going? How do I find you here at Barakul Ghimad? So he said, my pe-. He never told him where he was traveling. Abu Bakr radiallahu didn't tell him, I'm going to Abyssinia. He just said, أَخْرَجْنِي قَوْمِي فَأُرِيدُ أَنْ أَسِيحَ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَأَعْبُدَ رَبِّي My people have driven me out, so I wish to travel the land and worship my Lord. But he never told him where he was going. So Ibn Dhunna was surprised. And he was embarrassed because he was from Mecca. And he said, how is it possible that my people, the Meccans, can make someone like you leave? We are surely a poorer nation and a poorer people if the likes of you leave in frustration or are driven out. And then he mentioned some of the qualities of Abu Bakr radiallahu And what did he say? The likes of you do not leave and are not driven out. فَإِنَّكَ تَكْسِبُ الْمَعْدُونَ For you provide for the deprived. And you bear the burden on behalf of others. You carry other people's weight and burden. You assist others. And you host and entertain the guest. And you assist others over the misfortunes of fate. Haq here means fate. The Arabs... And what the silu rahim, and you bond the you bond the, you bind the bonds of blood, you bond the ties of blood. All of these things were virtuous deeds in the sight of the Arabs, and I'll quickly mention them. One, you provide for the deprived. The Arabs individually they may have had their weaknesses. But they had a strong sense of honor and tradition. And part of that honor and tradition was that they prided themselves in feeding people, in helping others. 
It's not all of them, many of them. And you tie the kinship of blood, you bond the ties of blood. That's extremely important. Even for the non-Muslim Arabs, that was a very important thing. And that's the only way the whole tribal structure survived. You bear the burden of other people. You entertain and host the guest. Again, the Arabs were renowned for this. For them, they frowned upon selfishness, upon miserliness, upon stinginess. They looked down upon others who were stingy. And their poets would boast of themselves and their tribal members spending and entertaining and hosting others. The Arabs were renowned for their entertaining, that guests were honoured. So much so that even if an enemy was to come into the house, they would feed him, they would entertain him. They had a tradition. And that's why the Arabs, they have this, they used to have this honour. And they used to have this sense that if, if someone shares their food with you, they trust you, they have granted you their protection. But if they do not share their food with you, then that means they are intent on killing you. And one had to go to extremes for that to happen. And that's why even in the Quran it's mentioned about Sayyidina Ibrahim alayhi salam. When the angels came to visit him, they brought food. He brought food for them. But they never ate. So when they never ate, he feared them. He feared them. Because that was a hostile sign. They feared they would not even share food. They wished to attack or harm me. They came in the form of men, so he did not recognize them. So Abu Bakr was told that you entertain the guests. And the final thing, and you assist others over the misfortunes of haq. Haq here means fate. The Arabs believed in fate, that major issues of fate, you can't do anything about them. So they believed in fate and the, and the calamities of fate and misfortunes. So if ever something happened, they would assist one another. And Abu Bakr was known for all of these things. He rose even amongst his peers in these noble virtues. Now again, as I said earlier, these five things are exactly the same things that were said by Ummul Mu'mineen Khadijah anha to the Prophet when he came back from the mountain and from Ghar Hira from the cave of Hira after the revelation of the Holy Qur'an and his first meeting with Jibreel alayhi salam. The Prophet sallallahu was overcome by awe. He was frightful. He was fearful. And he came straight to Umm Mu'mineen Khadijah radiallahu anha and she comforted him, consoled him, gave him solace. And when he felt the burden of that responsibility and feared for himself whether he would be able to fulfill it, she reassured him, and her words of reassurance were exactly the same. فَإِنَّكَ تَكْسِبُ الْمَعْدُونَ وَتَصِلُ الرَّحِمُ 
وتحمل الكل وتقلي الضيف وتعين على نوائب الحق that oh messenger of Allah Allah will never abandon you fear not for indeed you provide for the deprived you bear the burden of others you entertain the guests and you bond the ties of blood and you assist others over the misfortunes of time and fate so the reason why independently Ummul Mu'mineen Khadija radiyallahu anha could say that to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and Ibn Dhunna a non-Muslim many years later many many hundreds of miles from Makkah al-Mukarramah he could say exactly the same words to Abu Bakr radiyallahu an the reason for this was that both the Prophet ﷺ and Abu Bakr were the best of friends. And their temperaments merged. Their likes were similar. Their dislikes were similar. Their preferences were similar. Their characteristics were similar. Indeed, of all the Sahaba the closest in action, in deed, in wisdom, and in knowledge, to the Prophet ﷺ was Abu Bakr Siddiq They were both so similar in character. Even though Umar ibn al-Khattab is believe, we, we believe and we accept him as being the greatest Muslim after Abu Bakr Siddiq and the second best of the Sahaba His temperament, his nature, his character was so different to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. But Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiyallahu his temperaments, his temperaments merged with that of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. In Arabic there's a saying, al-jinsu yamilu il-jins. Like is inclined to like. And the reason he was his best friend is that even before Islam, they shared the sh- same values. They shared the same hopes. They were so similar in many ways. Both were traders. Both were noble, honest, just, assisting others. And not only that, between themselves, but all of the Quraysh knew that Muhammad and Abu Bakr are both similar. That's why even Ibn Dhunna could say this about the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam's closest companion was Abu Bakr radiallahu No one understood him like Abu Bakr radiallahu This is why the Sahaba radiallahu anhum relate that in the final days, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ascended the mimbar and there he gave a speech. And this, as part of the speech he said, Verily, Allah has given... A servant, Abdan. He didn't say me or a the servant. He said, Allah has given a servant a choice between this this world and the world of the hereafter. So the servant chose that which is with Allah. Abu Bakr radiallahu an exclaimed, Fidaka Abi wa Ummi ya Rasulullah, and burst into tears, sobbing loudly. So the narrator of the hadith says that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum looked at Abu Bakr radiallahu and they actually began thinking and saying, even the narrator says, I thought, Mali hadha shaykh yabki. What's wrong with this elderly, what's wrong with this senior man that he weaves? Allah gave a servant a choice between this world and the next life. So the servant chose the next life. Why does he weep over that? 
But then the narrator says, the servant was none other than Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And out of all of us, Abu Bakr radiallahu an was the most knowledgeable and the most understanding. He understood alone what that sentence meant. He was, his character was so merged with that of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They felt alike, they thought alike. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala it's, it's, a, it's a pattern of Allah in His creation. It's a sunnah of Allah in His creation. That those who follow the sunnah of the Messenger ﷺ voluntarily, Allah also causes them to tread the same path and follow in the footsteps of the Prophet ﷺ involuntarily. Abu Bakr was two years, a few months younger than the Prophet ﷺ. When the Prophet ﷺ left this world, Abu Bakr assumed the Khilafah. He lived for only that amount of time, which was the difference between his age and that of Rasulullah ﷺ. Two years, a few months. That was the time of his Khilafah. And he died at the same age as the age of Rasulullah ﷺ. They were so close. If anyone understood the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, it was Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu And so even Ibn al-Dhunna, a non-Muslim, hundreds of miles from Mecca, many years later, he could utter exactly the same words to Abu Bakr radiallahu that the closest companion, his noble wife, Umm al-Mu'mineen Khadija radiallahu anha, who knew him better than anybody else, she could utter the same words to him. What does that say of their character, of their likeness, of their closeness, and of how much Abu Bakr was influenced by Rasulullah So Ibn Dhunna says after praising him in that manner, jar, I will be your guarantor. I will give you guarantee and protection. Irji'an, return to Mecca. وعبد ربك ببلدك and worship your Lord in your city. فرجع. So he returned. فأنا لك جار. I will be your neighbor. Jar literally means neighbor. But the meaning of jar here is not I am your neighbor literally in the sense that just as a neighbor enjoys the protection of his neighbor or should do so. That neighbors look after each other. They look out for each other. They care for each other. So the Arabs, from this concept of being neighborly, of being a neighbor, they eventually adopted the concept of guarantee and protection. Jiwar. So if I grant you jiwar, which is related to neighborliness, it means guarantee and security. I will protect you. If anyone harms you, they harm me. So, Ibn Dhunna said to Abu Bakr radiallahu I am your neighbor. He didn't say, I am your neighbor. I am your guarantor. فَأَنَا لَكَ جَارٍ I am your guarantor. Irji' Return to Mecca. وَعْبُدْ رَبَّكَ بِبَلَدِكَ And worship your Lord in your city. فَرَجَعْ So Abu Bakr radiallahu returned. وَرْتَحَلَ مَعْهُ Ibn Dhunna. And Ibn al-Dughunna travelled with him all the way from Barkul Ghimad to Makkah al-Mukarrah. 
Upon arrival in Mecca, what did Ibn Dhunnah do? Fataf Ibn Dhunnah Ashiyatan fi Ashraf Quraysh. So Ibn Dhunnah at night, he visited all the chieftains and the nobles of the Quraysh. He passed by all of them in order to inform them. فَقَالَ لَهُمْ So he said to them, إِنَّ أَبَا بَكْرٍ Verily Abu Bakr لَا يَخْرُجُ مِثْلُهُ وَلَا يُخْرَجُ The likes of him do not leave, nor are they driven out. أَتُخْرِجُونَ رَجُلًا يَكْسِبُ الْمَعْدُونَ Do you drive out a man who provides for the deprived? وَيَسِلُ الرَّحْمِ And who bonds the ties of blood? وَيَحْمِلُ الْكَلِّ And bears the burden. وَيَقْرِ الضَّيْفِ And hosts and entertains the guest. وَيُعِينُ عَلَى نَوَائِبِ الْحَقِّ And assists others over the misfortunes of fate. Do you drive out such a man? فَلَمْ تُكَذِّبُ And he informed them that now I grant him my protection. So Ibn al-Dughunna was Sayyid al-Qara, the chieftain of the tribe of Qara. Since he granted protection to Abu Bakr radiallahu and what that meant is that to harm or hurt Abu Bakr was to harm or hurt Ibn al-Dughunna. And to harm or hurt Ibn al-Dughunna was to invite the retaliation and the warfare of the whole of the tribe of Qara. So Ibn Abu Bakr radiallahu and had that protection. فَلَمْ تُكَذِّبْ قُرَيْشٌ بِجِوَارِ Ibn al-Dughunna So Quraysh did not reject the protection and the guarantee of Ibn al-Dughunna, i.e. they did not resist it. They accepted. وَقَالُوا لِبْنُ الدُّغُنَّةِ And they said to Ibn al-Dughunnah, مُرْ أَبَا بَكْرِ Instruct Abu Bakr. فَلْيَعْبُدْ رَبَّهُ فِي دَارِهِ That he should worship his Lord in his home. فَلْيُصَلِّي فِيهَا So let him pray therein. وَلْيَقْرَأْ مَا شَاءَ And let him read whatever he wishes there in his home. وَلَا يُؤْذِينَا بِذَلِكَ But he should not trouble us with that. I.e. he should not inconvenience us or trouble us with his salah and his qira'ah, with his prayer and his recitation. وَلَا يَسْتَعْلِمْ بِهِ And nor should he announce it. But his worship should be secret and private in his home. His prayer should be private. His recitation should be private. And he should not openly announce this. فَإِنَّا نَخْشَى Why? فَإِنَّا نَخْشَى For indeed we fear. أَنْ يَفْتِنَ نِسَاءَنَا وَأَبْنَاءَنَا That he will bewitch and beguile our children and our women folk. They feared the Qur'an. They feared the preaching of Islam. They feared the message of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam to such a degree that they were averse to even hearing the words of the Qur'an. And even though Ibn al-Dughunna was a chieftain of a whole tribe, the whole tribe of Qara, and he so brazenly and openly and so confidently granted him protection and then visited all the chieftains of the Quraysh and told them, Abu Bakr, you drive out Abu Bakr. The likes of him do not leave and are not driven out. They are an honor to your people. And you dishonor yourselves by driving him out? If you will not protect him, then I, Ibn al I grant him my security and protection. 
So you pick a fight with him, you pick a fight with me. Imagine, he went to all of the chieftains of the Quraysh. So none of them had the courage to reject the guarantee and security of Ibn al-Dughunna. But they still had the cheek and the temerity to say to him, however, fine, we will let him stay in Mecca. But he cannot worship openly, he cannot pray openly, he cannot read openly, he cannot recite openly. His religion must be confined to the privacy of his own home. And then they even reveal the reason. They said, because we fear, because we fear that he will bewitch and beguile our women folk and our children. Because they feared the Qur'an. And this is why whenever someone would recite the Qur'an, they weren't so confident that people would reject the Qur'an outright. They tried everything, including causing a din and clamor like children or fools in the marketplace. If someone is speaking nobly, in a noble manner, and others don't wish them to be heard, what do they do? They stamp their feet, they beat their drums, they... Uh, boo and shout. So this is exactly what they would do with the recitation of the Qur'an. Allah says in the Qur'an, وَقَالَ إِن سُورَةُ فُسَّلَتْ وَقَالَ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَا تَسْمَعُوا لِهَذَا الْقُرْآنِ وَالْغَوْ فِيهِ لَعَلَّكُمْ تَغْلِبُونَ And the people who disbelieved, they said, لَا تَسْمَعُوا لِهَذَا الْقُرْآنِ Do not listen to this Qur'an when the Muslims would recite it. لَا تَسْمَعُوا لِهَذَا الْقُرْآنِ Do not listen to this Qur'an. And cause a disruption therein. لَعَلَّكُمْ تَغْلِبُونَ In the hope that you may become dominant. I.e. let your voice, let your din, let your clamor of objection overwhelm the recitation of the Qur'an. They feared the tilawah of the Qur'an. And the reason is, on occasions, the, women, uh, the children and the women, and not just the women and the children, but men, brave warrior men, they, they feared listening to the Qur'an, but at times they would secretly listen. And that they would meet and listen to someone reciting Qur'an in the courtyard of their home or somewhere in the street. And then they would tell each, they would ask each other, what were you doing? What were you doing? No, 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 I was just passing by. But they were, they were bewitched by the Qur'an. And forget anybody else. Even Sayyiduna Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi alayhi relates a hadith in his musnad that Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu says one day when he was a non-Muslim I went out to pest Muhammad ibn Abdullah, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam I went out to annoy him and to pester him. So I followed him until he reached Al-Masjid Al-Haram, the Masjid near the Kaaba, and he began Salah. So I stood behind him, and in his Salah he began the Tilawah and the recitation of Surah Al-Haq. <coughs> and whilst he was reading, I was listening intensely. And I was, even though I was opposed to him and I was a non-Muslim, and this was Umar ibn al-Khattab, he says I was listening intensely and he was obviously mesmerized by the recitation of the Messenger sallallahu and the poetry and the eloquence and the power of the words. So then he says when he reached the end of the surah, towards the end of the surah, 
I began saying to myself, these are very beautiful words. It's and then when he reached the verse for la bima tubsirun wa ma la tubsirun innahu laqawl rasulin kareem so i do swear by what you do not see and by what you do see that it i the quran is the word of a noble messenger i said to myself he is a poet the muhammad is a poet suddenly the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam recited the next verse وَمَا هُوَ بِقَوْلِ الشَّاعِرَ قَلِيلًا مَا تُؤْمِنُونَ That it is not the speech of a poet. Little do you believe. So instantly I thought to myself, if not a shā'ir, then a kāhin, a soothsayer. And the next verse is, وَلَا بِقَوْلِ كَاهِنْ قَلِيلًا مَا تَذَكَّرُونَ And nor the words of a soothsayer. Little do you take heed. تَنْزِيلٌ مِنْ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ A revelation from the Lord of the world. And this isn't just a fable, this is actually a hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal rahmatullahi alayhi. So that was Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu He says, until he reached the end of the surah. So then I began to have the first stirrings of Islam in my heart. قلبي, that it struck me in my heart. So the, the Qur'an is indeed mu'jiz, it's a defeat, it's overwhelming. And let alone children or women, even the warrior men like Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an, they were overwhelmed by the tilawah of the Qur'an. So this is what the Quraysh feared. They feared the truth. They feared the eloquence and the power of the message of the Qur'an. And so they said to Ibn Dughunna, fine, he can stay in Mecca, but he can't worship openly, let alone preach. He can't preach. He can't worship. He can't announce his religion. He can pray and he can read but only in the privacy of his own home. For we do fear that he will bewitch and mesmerize our women folk and our children. So Ibn Dughunna went and said this to Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu remained on this. يَعْبُدُ رَبَّهُ فِي دَارِهِ Worshipping his Lord in his home. وَلَا يَسْتَعْلِنُ بِصَلَاتِهِ And never openly announcing his prayer. وَلَا يَقْرَأُ فِي غَيْرِ دَارِهِ And never reading anywhere else other than in his home. ثُمَّ بَدَى لِأَبِي بَكْرٍ Then, another opinion occurred to Abu Bakr. Or he changed his mind. The Arabs... When they speak about someone changing their mind, they say, Badalahu. It's appeared to him. I, something new appeared, which he then decided to do. So the words, Badalahu, means he changed his mind. So, then Abu Bakr changed his mind. So he built a masjid, just a place of prayer, in the courtyard of his home. I've explained before, the words are dar, and I've been asked this question too, and I've explained before as well. What's the difference between bait and dar in Arabic? We normally translate both as house, so bait house, dar house. But in the Arabic original, in the original text, we normally find a difference between bait and dar. It's used in different places, so what is the difference? 
We may not be able to understand it very well here, but for those of you who've visited other countries or whose families do come from different parts of the world, you may understand this better. Bait means a house. And it can refer to a large house, but normally it would refer to a property which wouldn't have gardens or a courtyard or an estate. So it's normally just one house. It may have one room or more rooms. So even a single house with a single room is referred to as bait. Because bait simply refers to a place where one spends a night. But dar is not restricted to a single room. It's normally a large house, often with many chambers or smaller buildings. And those of you who understand Urdu will understand immediately, those of you who know Urdu will understand the difference immediately. In Asian countries, the difference between gar, which is bait, gar, and goti. Goti is dar. So when you have a goti, which is, which has many different smaller adjacent buildings and a large open, a large home with a courtyard, it doesn't have to have gardens or estates, but at least a courtyard or a front area, a back area. This goti is dar. And bait simply means gar. Now you can say, you can use gar for goti as well, but you wouldn't use goti for gar. Same in Arabic. You'd use bait for dar, but you wouldn't use dar just for a bait. So, Umm al Mu'minin Aisha radiallahu anha says, Fabtana masjidin. So Abu Bakr built a masjid in the courtyard of his house. But we don't just mean a house, we mean, like I said, Gorti. And he would pray salah therein, and he would recite the Qur'an in that new masjid area which he built in the courtyard of his home. So the women folk of the pagans and their children would burst upon Abu Bakr radiallahu and rush to him. They would actually rush to listen to him, read and to watch him pray. They would throng around him. وَهُمْ يَعْجَبُونَ مِنْ And they would be marveling at him. وَيَنْظُرُونَ إِلَيْهِ And they would be looking at him, observing him. وَكَانَ أَبُو بَكْرٍ رَجُلًا لَا يَمْلِكُ عَيْنَيْهِ إِذَا قَرَأَ الْقُرْآنِ And Abu Bakr was an excessively weeping man who could not control his eyes when he recited the Qur'an. Abu Bakr was very soft-hearted, extremely soft-hearted. Noble, gentle. But... After the Messenger وسلم, he was of the most perfect human beings. Soft and lenient where required. Firm and resilient where needed. Open and bold where required. Accommodating and tolerant, wise and silent. Forbearing and patient when needed. Allahu Akbar. That's why after the Prophet ﷺ, when he read the Qur'an, he would weep. When he would pray salah, he would weep. When he would receive good news, he would weep. 
soft, sensitive, humble, devout. But when the Prophet ﷺ passed away, and even a warrior like Umar ibn al-Khattab was lost in confusion, threatening to kill anyone who suggested that the Prophet ﷺ has passed away, the Sahaba were weeping, inconsolable. There was an atmosphere of confusion, utter shock and consternation, bewilderment. On that occasion, someone as soft-hearted and as humble and as devout and as emotional as Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, he was away. He calmly walked into the masjid, observed the congregation, saw Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu calmly walked through, visited the house of his daughter, saw the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa lying down, walked up to him, bent over him, kissed him with tears rolling from his eyes down his cheeks, rose and said, Tibta hayyum wa tibta mayyata ya Rasulullah. Pure you are in death, you are in life and pure in death. Allah will never combine two deaths for you, O Messenger of Allah. Then he walks out calmly. Big, Bids Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu to fall silent. He doesn't pay attention in his confusion, in his shock. So Umar Sayyidina Abu Bakr al-Siddiq radiallahu anhu calmly began speaking. And he delivers one of the most noble speeches in religious history. O people, man kana ya'budu Muhammadan fa inna Muhammadan qad mat. Wa man kana ya'budu Allah fa inna Allah hayyun la yamut. O people, whoever used to worship Muhammad, then know that he has died. And whoever worships Allah, then know that he is alive, everlasting, and never sh- shall never suffer death. Then he recited the verse of the Qur'an, وَمَا مُحَمَّدٌ إِلَّا رَسُولٌ قَدْ خَلَتْ مِنْ قَبْلِهِ الرُّسُلُ أَفَإِنْ مَاتَ أَوْ قُتِلٍ قَلَبْتُمْ عَلَىٰ أَعْقَابِكُمْ وَمَنْ يَنْقَلِبْ عَلَىٰ عَقِبَيْهِ فَلَنْ يَذُرَّ اللَّهَ شَيْئًا وَسَيَدْزِ اللَّهُ الشَّاكِرِينَ And Muhammad is but a messenger amongst the messengers. Many messengers have passed before him. What if he dies or he is killed? You will flip and turn on your heels. So whoever flips and turns on his heels, then he does not harm Allah in the least. And Allah will reward those who are grateful. When he finished the recitation of this Qur'an, of this verse of the Qur'an, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu actually collapsed. And he says, it was then I realized that indeed the Prophet ﷺ has left this world. And this Umar ibn al-Khattab anhu says that we, although the verse was revealed, it did not occur to us. And they felt as though they had never heard the verse before. Of all the people, the one who was the most sensitive, the most emotional, the most humble, the most devout, the calmest, he who could not control his eyes when praying, reading the Qur'an, or even receiving good news, he was the most robust and resilient. Allahu Akbar. That is what you call a balanced individual. No one could match that amongst all the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. But he was a man who was extremely emotional and he was attached to the Holy Qur'an. When we did the commentary on the hadith of Ifq, 
about the false accusation that was leveled against Umm Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha. You recall that in one part it said that she, when she regained consciousness, she had fallen down unconscious when she regained consciousness. She said to her mother, has the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam found out about this allegation? Has my father found out? And when Umm Ruman radiyallahu anha confirmed to her that they, uh, they did, she began weeping loudly and wailing. So Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu, where was he? At the time of this great misfortune and calamity that had befallen his family and his daughter's honor, his family honor was at stake and his chaste daughter had been falsely accused of adultery. What was Abu Bakr radiyallahu anhu doing on that occasion? He was on the roof of the house reading the Qur'an. Abu Bakr was attached and devoted to the Qur'an. And he, he would weep when he read the Qur'an. He would weep in salah too. This is why again towards the final days, when the Prophet ﷺ was extremely ill, he said to, he was unable to lead the Muslims in prayer. So the family was gathered around him. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha was there. Hafsa radiyallahu anha was there. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in his illness and great pain, he said to them, Muru Aba Bakrin falyusalli bin nas. Instruct Abu Bakr that he should lead the people in prayer. So Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha spoke up. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, indeed Abu Bakr in Abu Bakrin Rajulun Bakka, O Messenger of Allah, Abu Bakr radiallahu an is one who excessively weeps and is emotional. So instruct Umar ibn al Khattab to lead the salah. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Muru Abu Bakrin falyusalli bin nas. Instruct Abu Bakr that he should lead the people in prayer. He didn't listen to Aisha radiallahu anha. So Aisha radiallahu anha said to Hafsa, tell him, tell the Prophet, you say to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that your father should lead. So Hafsa radiallahu anha spoke up and she said exactly what Aisha radiallahu anha had said. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, inna Aba Bakrin rajulun bakka. Indeed, Abu Bakr is a man who weeps excessively. He's emotional. He's unable to control his tears or his emo- he's unable to control his tears. So instruct Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu, instruct Umar ibn al-Khattab to lead the salah. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, inna kunna antunna sawahibu Yusuf. That verily you are like the women companions of you are like the women around Yusuf alayhi salam. Muru Abu Bakrin falyusalli bin nas. Instruct Abu Bakr that he should lead the people in prayer. What did he mean by you are like the women of Yusuf? In the story of Yusuf alayhi salam, the wazir's wife she tried to seduce him. He rebuffed her and resisted her seduction and spurned her advances. And he wasn't tempted. So she then enlisted the help of the other women folk. So they all started piling pressure on him, on him, saying that, uh, accept the invitation and do not spurn the advances of the wife of the nobleman of Egypt. So what did Yusuf alayhi salam say? 
ربي السجن أحب إلي مما يدعونني إليه وإلا تصرف عني كيدهم أصب إليهن وأكم من الجاهلين أو oh my Lord prison is far better for me than what they invite me to and if you oh my Lord if you do not turn away and divert their plot and their scheme from me then perchance I may be inclined to them and then I will become one of the wrongdoers and the unjust so she tried to convince him individually. When he didn't listen to her, she enlisted the help of the other women folk. And they all tried to convince him. So here Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he said, instruct Abu Bakr to lead the people in prayer. She said, he's a very emotional man. He, he, he's a man who weeps excessively. So instruct Umar ibn al-Khattab. So the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam repeated, Muru Aba Bakr, instruct Abu Bakr. He should lead the people in prayer. So Aisha radiyallahu anha enlisted the help of Umar, uh, Hafsa radiyallahu anha. Uh, so she said to her, you tell him as well to tell your father to lead in prayer, not my father because he weeps excessively. So Hafsa radiyallahu anha then said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, just as Aisha is saying, Abu Bakr radiyallahu anha weeps excessively. So tell Umar ibn al-Khattab, the Prophet ﷺ said, You are like the women folk of Yusuf. Instruct Abu Bakr to lead the people in prayer. So Hafsa anha turned to Aisha and said, No good has ever come from you to me. I've never seen any good come from you. Then, now the question here is, Why did Aisha anha? This would have been a thing of great honor. That the Prophet ﷺ is unwell. So who leads the people in prayer? Someone has to. He can't. So why, sh- why shouldn't Abu Bakr lead the people in prayer? That would be a thing of great honor. For whoever steps onto the musalla, whoever steps onto that pr- place of prayer now, whoever leads Muslims in prayer, he is a true representative and the successor to the Messenger wasallam. So under normal logic, we would think that this would be an opportunity that uh, shouldn't be missed. But Aisha radiallahu anha was ultimately the flesh and blood and the daughter of Abu Bakr radiallahu anha. She was just as far-sighted and prescient and wise and sharp as her father. Didn't the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam say when she silenced Zainab bint Jahsh radiallahu anha in a verbal contest, to the extent that Zainab bin Tujahsh radiyallahu anhu covered it in uh, in kitab in babu shahadat an-nisa ba'dhihinna li ba'd that the in the chapter of women testifying about one another that when Zainab bin Tujahsh radiyallahu anha argued with her and she replied back and she says Aisha radiyallahu anha in one narration that I I replied to her and I silenced her until even her saliva dried up in her mouth. So when she fell silent, the Prophet ﷺ was observing this verbal contest. He then said, she is after all the daughter of Abu Bakr. So she was just as eloquent as her father and just as wise and intelligent. So do you know why she did not want her father to lead? Because, subhanAllah, Memories are forever attached with emotions. And when people remember something, 
They don't just remember that one thing in isolation, they remember things on the periphery. They remember all the other associated items too. Today was a day of great sadness and mourning and sorrow and pain for the whole Muslim ummah. Because the Prophet ﷺ is ill, he is bedridden, he is so severely ill that he cannot rise to lead the Muslims in prayer. The Muslims are emotional, in pain, in hurt. On this occasion, if Abu Bakr anhu leads a prayer, a number of things will happen. One of them is that people will forever associate the leading of Abu Bakr in prayer and in salah with the final terminal illness of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. One. Secondly, if Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, that's for the future, but even then, if Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was to lead the Muslims in prayer, because of his soft nature, he would be constantly weeping and sobbing in salah because of the condition of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This in itself would not help the collective morale of the Muslims on that occasion. So Ummul Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha suggested that, but she feared as well, that people would forever associate this. And they would all get ill. They would all get ill from the leadership of Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu in prayer. So she said, tell Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu. Anyway, as I was saying, Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu was attached to the Qur'an, devoted. Regardless of whether he was reciting the Qur'an or whether he was praying salah, he could not control his tears. He would weep profusely. And he was very emotional and soft-hearted. So she says... He was a man who wept excessively. He could not control his eyes when he recited the Quran. And this frightened and caused the leaders and the chieftains of the Quraysh to panic from amongst the pagans. So they sent word to Ibn Dughunna to come to them. فَقَدِمَ عَلَيْهِمْ So he came to them. Ibn al was the one who granted him guarantee and protection. I'll stop here. What conversation ensued between Ibn al and the chieftains of the Quraysh? Ultimately, they told him, look, he's violated the terms of the agreement. Either you stop him from praying and reading and reciting openly, as we had agreed, or you step out away from in between us and him, and you revoke your guarantee of security. <coughs> so he then went to Abu Bakr and said, look, our agreement was that I would grant you safety and security and give you my guarantee of protection. But on the condition of the Quraysh that you do not worship, Outside, you do not announce your religion and you pray and you recite only in the privacy of your home. But you've changed that, you've violated the terms of the agreement. So either you abide by the terms or then you revoke. You free me from your guarantee of protection and so that I can revoke it publicly and honorably. So what was Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's reply? What was the conversation that ensued? Inshallah, to be continued next week. 
come yourselves and invite others also. Sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulih nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Subhanakallahumma bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa ant. Nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al-Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.